At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're going to judge me for meeting a stranger on Craigslist, I'd prefer you stop listening right now. I live with enough internal judgment as it is. I was 20. I had a used 1999 blue-green Toyota Corolla, social anxiety, and $19.13 in my bank account. It was the first semester of my junior year at Carleton College, and there were half a dozen get-togethers every weekend that I was running out of excuses to avoid. So I decided that babysitting would be the perfect way to spend my Friday nights. The thought of spending my weekend nights all alone, studying, while making $9 an hour, soothed my neurons more than I could possibly say. Don't judge me. So when I found Amy on Craigslist, everything seemed perfect. Chloe was five, and Ivan was in his terrible twos. After a week of emailing and texting, I felt like I really knew her. She was 33 years old and a stay-at-home mom who was itching to get back into the workforce. You're perfect. She had disclosed several times via text. Nothing seemed sketchy, and if you can't make a leap of faith at least once in a while, doesn't that make for a miserable and empty existence? I was the consummate professional. I had a pantsuit and everything. And yes, I was wearing Converse to a job interview. But hey, it was kid-friendly. And I was ready to charm the shit out of those fucking kids. I pulled the Corolla in front of the house at 7.30pm for the 8 o'clock interview. Then sat and stared out of the windshield for 20 minutes before walking in 10 minutes early. Because, you know, the anxiety. It was already dark by that time in the Minnesota October, and I slid my way up the frozen cement walkway in an oversized parka and mittens. I ran the doorbell with my thumb and waited. As I watched my breath rise up in plumes, I imagined all the bad things that might be happening behind that door. (sighs) I couldn't help it. I was relieved when it finally opened, and extremely tense when it wasn't Amy. Unless Amy was a baby-faced man-child with a creepy smile. He stared at me, pale-faced, for several awkward seconds. Then his eyes started to gravitate past my neck and toward my chest. Um, I stated awkwardly. His eyes snapped back up to mine, and he offered a delighted smile. Come on in. Um, Amy? She's my aunt. She's in the back with Chloe and Ivan. I watched the steam rise in front of me as I breathed a sigh of relief. 
He knew everyone's name. That meant he could be trusted, right? I walked into the house, past the staircase, and he snapped the door shut behind me. It was a pretty nice place, to be honest. He walked past me, deeper inside, without offering to take my coat. I waited for a beat, then took it off, looked around, and left it on the floor. I really didn't want to inconvenience anyone by asking where I should put it. I kept the mittens on, because my pantsuit had no pockets. Trotting quickly, I followed him into the kitchen. We went through and came out into a living room, where he sat down on the couch. He patted the cushion right next to him, and I froze in place at the thought of sitting next to a stranger. After an uncomfortable silence, I finally addressed a stranger, which I hate doing. So, will I be meeting the kids tonight? Because I, uh, thought I'd be meeting the kids tonight. I was an eloquent speaker. Amy wants you to interview with me. He said in a voice that tried to be smooth, but was just creepy. He then proceeded to lick his lips. At the pee, I announced chipperly. At the pee, which way? The man-child looked genuinely confused. Um, it's the room with the toilet in it. This raised an alarm. One of the very uncomfortable things about social anxiety is knowing that there is sometimes legitimate anxiety that needs to be separated from the things that my friends see to placate me. Do you know the feeling you get when you're about to encounter an ex who you're totally over but not really for the first time in months, knowing that he'll show up with another woman? Combine that with looking over the edge of a three-story roof while watching a kid faceplant on the concrete and knocking out his front teeth. That's the level of anxiety that consumes me when I can't control it. I couldn't control it in that moment. I tried to think of something to say, but just gave up and walked out of the living room. The bathroom is a sanctuary of anxiety-stricken, so I darted my face all around the house in search of one. My eyes landed on a hallway lined with photos, so I headed in that direction with the hopes that it would lead me out of sight. I was walking through the hallway when I stopped. The pictures on the wall were all of the same family. They didn't look much like the man-child at all. A couple who looked to be in their 60s was featured in every one. They were probably 20 years past childbearing age, with flecks of white in their hair. Both were thin and black, which stood in stark contrast to the round-faced, pale man-child in the living room. Three children appeared in various photos with them, all of whom were in their late teens. I then began to think about the living room. There were no toys. Chloe was five. I looked to the blank white fridge. There were no drawings stuck to its surface, 
Ivan is too. And there was no baby gate at the staircase. And that's when my anxiety went into overdrive. I would have had to go past the living room to exit through the front door. So instead, I turned and trotted down the hall. I think that I heard Manchild stand up, but I wasn't interested in sticking around long enough to find out how much of it was my own imagination. I emerged into a small room with tall vases on the floor that's kid-friendly and realized I was at the end of the house and there was no back door. I tried to open the window, but it was locked. I fumbled with the hitch. I couldn't use my fingers with the mittens binding them and was unable to open it. My panicked mind told me that I didn't have time to take the mittens off as I definitely heard a man-child walking through the house. And I finally grasped the hitch and it slowly spun around until the window was unlocked and I pushed and pushed and pushed until it finally opened in a whoosh of cold air. I climbed into the frosty night, but my converse caught something on the way out. I don't know if it was the seal or if it was a hand, but I tumbled onto the ground, laid still for half a second and scrambled to my feet. This was the backyard and I was still far away from my car. Shit. I ran around the side of the house, trying to stay quiet. Instead, I knocked over a trash barrel, and then a cat screamed. Damn it. As I moved forward, the Corolla began to emerge in the distance, and I started running toward it. That was a mistake. Man, was that ground icy. Who knew that a tailbone could hurt so much when it hit the ground? I fell hard and got up and walked briskly, my feet sliding every which way along the frozen concrete as I approached my car. My hands were rattling from the cold, my nerves and the pain I felt. I tried to get my key through the lock, but it wouldn't go in. Tears streaming, I pinched the tip, aimed it at the keyhole, and forced it. Goddamn value edition Corolla with no remote locks. I opened the door, threw myself in, started the car, and peeled away without waiting for the engine to warm up. Three blocks away, I was about ready to give myself permission to cry. The sensation of wrongness hit me then but it took a second to understand why my spatial orientation was off. There wasn't supposed to be a head in the back seat reflecting from the rearview mirror. I screamed and turned the car towards a tree. The crash wasn't bad, but the airbags deployed. Given the speed I'd been going, it didn't hurt any worse than my tailbone. I pushed open the car, dropped to the ground, and threw up. Once my gut was clear, I sprinted into the woods and hid in the shadow. 
After five minutes had passed, I was about ready to admit that I'd imagined the head in the mirror. I had stood up and had taken one step forward when the rear driver's side door opened. A shadow stepped out, slammed the door behind it, and walked away down the road. Two hours passed before the fear of hyperthermia finally coaxed me from my hiding spot. Unfortunately, I had left my parka in the house. I never told the police about the man in my car. Who would have believed me? Facing the skepticism was more than I could bear. I instead said that a cat had run in front of me and that I stared towards the tree in an attempt to avoid it. My anxiety had forced me to plan 10 contingency stories for the police if they asked too many of the wrong questions. In the end, they simply decided that my car was safe to drive, flipped their notebook into a pocket, and left. I drove straight to my dorm room and stayed there until classes resumed on Monday. I peed in a Gatorade bottle because I was afraid to open the door. My borderline anorexia stormed past this threshold and I actually felt better skipping meals for three days. I told myself that it was better to keep secrets, that no one would believe me, that even if someone did, it wouldn't do any good. So there was no risk worth seeming crazier than I already was. It helped me sleep at night for 13 days. At the end of October, a woman named Katherine Ann Olsen tried to meet Amy from Craigslist for a babysitting gig. But Amy wasn't real. Michael John Anderson was, and he murdered Katherine when she arrived. He'd been planning it for some time. Michael will spend the rest of his life in jail, God willing. It's impossible to forgive myself for keeping my story a secret. The knowledge that I was so close to dying and saving someone else in doing so has set fire to every single nerve in my body. I had to drop out of school and I was never able to drop back in. That night has shattered my entire life. Paranoia, fear, and guilt are as omnipresent as sound and light. In a way, I'll spend the rest of my life in jail, too. So, over the last seven months, I've been working for someone I responded to on Craigslist. Well, I'll just explain everything. This seems like an appropriate place to post this. I was scouring the internet for some sort of paying gig. I didn't really care what. Then, I came across a post on Craigslist. I had just refreshed the page, and there it was. Someone was looking for a person to come by and feed their pets. I assumed they were going out of town or something, so I contacted them and left my number through email. I got a response immediately, in the form of a phone call. The caller was a man 
who explained to me that he was moving out of town and his parents had cats they wanted fed daily. I gave the man my name so he could run me through a cursory background check and in about 20 minutes, I was hired. I went there the next morning to get all the instructions and whatnot and meet the man I'd spoken to on the phone. His name was Ben. Ben explained to me that he would no longer be able to care for his parents' cats and that his parents needed to focus on themselves, so I was being brought on to take care of that. The money would be left on the kitchen table at the end of every week. $200 a week, just to feed some cats. I know, right? In addition to that, money for more cat food would be left for me as needed. Then, he told me the first thing that I thought was strange. I was to come at exactly 10 a.m. every day and be gone by 10.10 a.m. And I was never under any circumstances to interact with his parents. He told me that when I'm in their home, they will be in their chairs in the living room, watching television, and that I was not to disturb them, ever. He asked if any of that would be a problem, to which I assured him it wouldn't. He then showed me the area in which the cats ate. There were four cats, and where the food was kept. While not rude in the least, he was very adamant that I not explore further in the house, which I promised him wouldn't be a problem. He ushered me outside and showed me where the spare key was in case the door was ever locked, but he told me that was very unlikely to happen. And with that, he expressed his hope that I could be trusted one last time shook my hand and told me to be there at 10am every day starting tomorrow. If I was ever unable to make it, call and leave a message on their home phone, to which he gave me the number. I shook my head and was on my way. The next day came and I went inside at exactly 10am. I walked into the house and immediately to my right were Ben's parents, sitting in recliners, facing away from me watching some kind of game show. I announced my presence, which they ignored, and made my way to the kitchen. I fed the cat's bowls and left. This exact same scenario played out countless times over the next few months. 10am, unreturned hello, feed the cats, leave. On Fridays, I would pick up the small stack of $20 bills from the kitchen table. It was the easiest job I ever had. Then came the inevitable. One day, I was running late. I got to the house at 8 past 10. I entered and apologized to Ben's parents for being late, to which I once again got no response. They just kept sitting in their chairs watching their game show. I went to the kitchen and fed the cats. I looked at my phone, which read 10.11, and walked down the hall towards the front door. When I reached the living room, I jumped and gasped out of shock. Ben's parents were now standing in the dark behind their chairs, completely still, staring directly at me. I apologized for running late and got out of there. Though unnerved, I went back the next day on time and everything was fine. A few more months went by of nothing strange, and then came the last day I was there. I got there at 10.03, but wasn't worried because I knew I could be out before 10 past 10. The problem came when I was in the kitchen, and I heard someone whisper the words, 
It startled me, and I jumped, looking around for the source of the cry for help. I saw no one around, but I heard it again, and then a third time. I began looking around before realizing I was running behind. I looked at my phone and saw it was ten past ten. My heart sank to my stomach when I looked down the hallway and saw Ben's parents for the first time in the light. They were grossly emaciated and pale, looking completely malnourished. They were essentially walking skeletons. I apologized for taking so long and said I'd be on my way, but they just stood there, blocking the way to the front door. I said I would take the back door, which was located in the kitchen, but when I went to open it, I found that it required a key to open from the inside. Seriously. It was at this point that true panic set in. I looked behind me and the parents were now about a half a foot away from the entrance to the kitchen and I had nowhere else to go except where I presumed was a door to a pantry. They had blank stares across their faces and their eyes looked as if the life had left them a long time ago. In a last-ditch effort, I went to the door that I thought was the pantry, and was instead met with a staircase leading into a basement, with, of course, no light. As soon as I opened the door, there was a horrid stench that washed over the otherwise clean air I was standing in. I carefully went down the stairs and looked for a window, but they were all nailed shut. I happened to look back up the stairs, and the parents were now standing next to each other at the top of the stairs. It was truly horrifying. I pulled out my phone and called 911, not knowing what else to do. And when I explained my situation, they said they would send a car out immediately and to stay on the phone while they connected me to the unit en route. I ran into the dark basement using my phone as a light. It didn't provide too much illumination since I was in the middle of a call, but it was just enough. There were racks of junk that lined the basement, separating it in almost aisles. I went down to check if any of the windows were possibly loose, like I'd be that lucky. Then I turned around and shined the light in front of me, and I was inches away from the parents' lifeless-looking faces. I let out a scream and ran in the other direction and tripped over something, sending my phone flying from my hand. Of course, it landed face down, so I couldn't find it. I ran back up the stairs and into the kitchen, looking back and seeing the parents standing at the bottom of the stairs, with slight grins on their faces. I ran down the hall to the front door, flung it open, screaming when I saw the cop standing right in front of me. He asked me if I was the one that called, as I pushed past him to get outside, and told him I was. I looked in the window and saw the parents sitting in their chairs, watching their game show. I explained that these crazy old people had trapped me in their house and were chasing me around. The cop went in to talk to the parents and look around while I sat in the cop car. He came back out about five minutes later and asked if I was sure someone was chasing me. I said yes, I was absolutely sure that it was the two old people that lived there. He informed me that the people that lived there, the people in the chairs, have been dead for quite some time. 
I asked what the smell in the basement was and he said that there was another body down there. Backup showed up. I gave them my statement and explained how I'd been coming there every day for months and months to feed the cats. I told them to call Ben, the homeowner's son. I gave them the number and it was disconnected. I found out a few days later that the body in the basement was Ben. What I don't get is who's been paying me?